Well, I want to take a, a quick break this morning from our study in the Gospel of John. And I want to talk about the Gospel of God's glory. We're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John, but, but I want us to think about the Gospel from the perspective of God's glory this morning. I don't know what your church experience has been. Um, I know a, a number of you grew up in churches or spent time in churches that preach the Gospel every Sunday. And on the surface, that sounds like a very good thing. But if the main point of every sermon every week is simply that people need to get saved, that's not necessarily a good thing for those who are already saved. First of all, it's very hard to grow and mature as a believer in a church whose primary goal is presenting the gospel to unbelievers every time the door is open. That's kind of what they do. That's their main emphasis. Furthermore, it's, a, I think, a misapplication of the purpose of the church, not to, not to mention it's an aberration of the pattern of the church that's clearly modeled for us in the New Testament. From its inception, the church was established to evangelize the lost and to edify and equip the saints. But if you look at the, the birth and the growth of, of the church in the book of Acts, believers would gather together to be edified and, and equipped, and then would scatter to evangelize unbelievers. And so that's a very important distinction to make, is what are we all about when we get together, right, as the body of Christ? Well, it might sound self-serving, right? But that's what we see the pattern is, Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 42, right? They devoted themselves to sound doctrine, right, to the apostles' teaching, uh, to, to the Lord's Supper, to prayer, uh, and, and to fellowship. And, and, and the focus was, was on one another and being equipped and being, being, being uh, edified. And then they would leave, right, to go evangelize and go reach people, lost people with the gospel. And so that's why when we gather together on Sundays and Wednesdays here at Lakeside, our main focus is on building up believers inside the church, so you can grow and you can mature in your walk with Christ and be better equipped to evangelize the lost outside the church, where you spend the majority of your week, right? Now granted, every time we, we gather together, I think people should hear and see the gospel. There shouldn't be a Sunday or Wednesday that goes by where the gospel is not heard, whether it's through the songs that we sing, through a prayer that's prayed, through, through um, a message that's preached, through an invitation that's given, through a conversation that's had uh, afterward, before or afterwards, that people should be given an opportunity to turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Why? Because we should never assume that everyone who attends church is a true believer, right? And so the gospel needs to be proclaimed on a regular basis. And I think in a church like ours that focuses so much on edifying and equipping believers, it's imperative that from time to time we reiterate the gospel, we reemphasize the gospel message for two vital purposes. One, it provides a clear presentation of the gospel for those who are not saved with the hope that perhaps God may grant you genuine repentance and faith. Again, I'm not under the delusion that everyone, everybody sitting here this morning is saved, is a Christian that knows Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And so we need to continually communicate the gospel so that those who are not saved may perhaps repent and believe. Our goal as a church is that no one who attends here would end up in hell because they never heard the gospel. Or because they sat here every Sunday thinking they were saved when they really weren't. We want to make it hard to go to hell from this church. So, first of all, reiterating the gospel, reemphasizing the gospel uh, provides a clear presentation for those who are not saved. But it also, secondly, provides a clear presentation of the gospel for those who are saved with the hope that you will faithfully share that message of salvation with others. And our goal is, is that everyone who attends Lakeside would have a simple gospel outline memorized that you can use any time that God gives you an opportunity to witness to someone. 
And so we want to make it easy for you to share the gospel with other people. We want to make it hard for you to go to hell, and we want to make it easy for you to share the gospel with others. And really, that is a glorious privilege, is it not, to share the gospel? It is a glorious privilege to share the gospel with other people. And the gospel is truly glorious in and of itself. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. Just to set the scene here, Paul is writing to his young disciple Timothy and encouraging him to remain on in Ephesus and to set things in order that um, needed to be straightened out in that church. And he was talking about the, the false teachers there who were misrepresenting the truth and misunderstanding the law. And he says here in verse 11, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, he talks about how Timothy needed to stay on track with the truth and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, he needed to confront that. According, here it is, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul was saying, Timothy, I've been entrusted with this, this glorious gospel of the blessed God. Now, you, some of you may have an English Standard Version, an ESV, or maybe an NIV in front of you, and it says a little something different there. Uh, the ESV says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. The NIV says that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. So it's interesting how different translations um, translate this phrase, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Some think it's best to call it the glory of the blessed God. I like that translation. The glory of the blessed God. The gospel, which is the glory, right, of the blessed God. Why? Because the gospel is all about God's glory. When you think about it, Romans 11 Verse 36, the, the last verse uh, before the transition in the book of Romans, you know chapters 1 through 11, uh, is, is Paul explaining the gospel. Basically, um, the book of Romans is like a, is like a track, a, an evangelistic track, and, and he explains the gospel in, in, in Romans chapter 1 through 11. And then in chapters 12 through 16, he talks about the therefore, the so what, in light of the mercies of God, right, that we should give ourselves as a living sacrifice, uh, pleasing to the Lord. But the transitional verse, really the climactic verse at the end of, of all of this explanation of, of, of the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ, is Romans eleven thirty six, And it says, for from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be what? The glory forever. Amen. In other words, the gospel climaxes, it culminates in the glory of God. And so this morning, I want to explain the gospel to you from the perspective of God's glory. I want, you to, I want, I want to get you to look at the gospel in, in a way that you may have never looked at it before. Maybe some of you are... Uh, you know, just kind of have the gospel in your mind as the, as the Romans road, or, or maybe you have the four spiritual laws, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and you kind of go through that, and that's the, how you understand the gospel. But I want, you to, I want to get you to look at the gospel in a, in a, in a different light this morning, and, and to do so, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 12. This is a good place to begin. Acts chapter 12, and here we have one of the most fascinating um, really compelling incidences found anywhere in the scriptures. It's how Herod Agrippa died. Uh, Herod was the governor of the northern region of Palestine during the days of the early church. And uh, he wasn't a very nice fella, to say the least. Um, the Romans didn't like him. The Jews didn't like him. And so in order to keep the Romans off his back, he wanted to keep the Jews off his back. And so the way he would try to earn the Jews' favor is by persecuting Christians. And so he had already had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. He had him executed, James being the, the, um, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then he had just, at the beginning of chapter 12, he had had Peter arrested 
and he was planning on executing him as well. And uh, this is how Luke records the story in Acts chapter 12. Peter was in prison and was miraculously released, if you remember, through that prayer meeting, right? And he came and knocked on the door, and that little girl came to the door, and she said, said, who is it? He says, Peter, right? And she didn't believe it, right? Uh, How many times we pray, right, and ask the Lord to do something, and we don't believe that he can answer that prayer. So Peter was released, but then look what happens to the guy who tries to kill uh, Christ's servants. This is Acts 12, 20. It says, Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him, and having one over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And so here these people were praising him and giving him honor and glory. In fact, uh, Josephus says on this occasion, Herod showed up in this robe made of silver. And then when he walked into this uh, arena where he gave this great speech, uh, he glistened like the sun. And so the people were just worshiping him and, and, and saying, He's a, this is the voice of a God, not a man. We know that in previous uh, accounts in the book of Acts, right, when people wanted to bow down to Peter and, and other apostles, right, what would they do? Whoa, 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 time, don't worship us. We're no different than you are. We're men like yourselves. Please get back on your feet. And, and we didn't do this. This was Christ through us, right? The Spirit of God through us. And so they would make sure that they would give all the glory, right, to God. Well, obviously Herod didn't get that concept. And, and, and we can tell here that he loved the praise of men. Verse 23, it says, And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, Why? Because he did not give God the glory. And oh, by the way, he was eaten by worms and died. Thanks, Luke. Appreciate that. Doctor's medical record there. How did he die? Cause of death. He got eaten by worms. But the point is, not how he died, but why he died. Why did he die? Because he did not give God the glory. And guess what? Every one of us is guilty of the same crime. That we do not give God the glory. And we need to understand God doesn't take very kindly to that. Turn back in the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 48 verse 11. And we're just kind of setting the scene here for the gospel from the perspective of God's glory. Isaiah 48 verse 11 gives us a commentary on Herod's death and everyone else who's died not giving God the glory. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11. Isaiah 48, verse 11. For my own sake, this is God speaking, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? So you don't give, you try to take God's glory for yourself, right? You don't give God glory, what happens? He kills you. (laughs) He kills you. I'm not sharing my glory. I mean, this is a radical verse. One of the most radical verses in 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 the entire Bible. It teaches us that God is jealous for his glory. He doesn't want anyone else to get any glory. He wants all the glory to himself. In fact, God's number one goal is to glorify himself. He says, everything I do, I act for my own sake. Everything he does in the world is to magnify and exalt himself. He cares about himself and his glory more than anyone else or anything else. Now, some of you guys are struggling with that, right? That doesn't sound right, does it? Um, when the reason why it doesn't sound right is because you don't like people like that. <laughs> You don't want a God like that who's like this, uh, you know, a show-off, right, who's uh, enamored with himself or on some ego trip. Well, God's not 
enamored with himself. He's not arrogant. He's not self-centered. Um, you might also struggle with that, not, not just because you don't like people like that. You know the Bible tells you not to be like that. Not to be arrogant, not to be self-focused, self-absorbed, all about you, right? Well, we need to understand that the rules of humility that apply to us don't apply to God. It's wrong for us to glorify ourselves, but it's not wrong for God to glorify himself. And that just, even though we're wrestling with that in our minds, it shows how finite we are. And how infinite he is, that he is so far beyond us that, that somehow it's okay for him to glorify himself, but it's wrong if we glorify ourselves. It might help if I define for you God's glory. The glory of God is, is essentially the sum of all of who he is. It's, it's basically who God is. It's, a, it's a, comp, a composition or a composite of all of his attributes, his love, his mercy, his grace, his justice, his wrath, his power. You fill in the blank. That's God's glory. Everything we know about God could be called his glory. And, and the glory of God is intrinsic to God, in other words, it's part of who he is. As light is to the sun, as blue is to the sky, as wet is to water, so glory is to God. You don't make the sun light, it is light. You don't make the sky blue, it is blue. You don't make water wet, it is wet. And you don't make God glory, he is glory. And that's just not the way it is with us. Because our glory is granted to us. Any glory that we have here on this earth, it's, it's granted to us. If you take away a king's robe and take off his crown and place him next to a beggar in the slums, you wouldn't, there would be no difference between the two, right? Why? Because that king has no intrinsic glory. The only glory a king has is when you give him a crown and a robe and you sit him on a throne and all of a sudden he has glory. But that's not who he is. And see, the glory of God, God's glory, um, is his very essence. You can't take it away from him. He is the God of glory, according to Psalm 29. And so because God is the only one who has intrinsic glory, he's the only one who deserves to be glorified and the only one who can demand to be glorified. In other words, he has every right to show off his glory at any time and in any way he wants. And he has every right to jealously guard his glory from those who try to steal it from him. God has a passion for his glory. His ultimate priority is to glorify himself. And he expects everyone else on this planet who he's created to have that same passion for his glory and to make it their ultimate priority as well to glorify God. The reformers got this. Guys like Luther and Calvin and John Knox and John Wesley, they understood the overarching theme of the Bible was the glory of God. And they sought to make that the ultimate priority of the church in their day but also the ultimate priority of their own personal lives. And if you know anything about the, the Westminster uh, Confession or Catechism, this was, um, th this was just a means where the Reformers could put together their thoughts on the Scriptures, and it's kind of their doctrinal statement, if you will, in, in short. And so the very first question that they ask, and it was a developed and designed in a Q&A format really to teach their children doctrine, sound doctrine. So they did it in a question and answer format, a catechism. And so the very first question is what? What is the chief end of man? First question, out of the gate, what, what's the chief end of man? Why do we exist? Why are we here on this planet? And the answer is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we glorify God and enjoy him forever? I mean, the concept of the glory of God is, is huge. Um, and, and really, we could spend weeks talking about the glory of God. But let me just try to give you a simple overview this morning and just, just to summarize everything the Bible says about the glory of God in six simple statements, six critical truths that we must understand so we give God the glory due him. 
And uh, you can write these down as I go, or you can just grab a, an outline in the back that, that we've provided for you. But number one, number one, the first thing you need to understand about God's glory is there is a God who deserves glory. Number one, there is a God who deserves glory. It's as simple as that. And, and the scripture, is, it just assumes that. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I would defy you to look in the front of your Bibles and to see uh, before you get to Genesis 1-1, there's no preface, there's no introduction. There is written by men, right, maybe. But it's not like God had to write a preface, an introduction, and say, hey, before uh, I introduce myself to you, let me prove my existence. Let me give you all the reasons why uh, you should believe that I exist. He doesn't do that. Uh, He doesn't feel like he has to use evidence Right uh, or or proof uh, to for people to believe his exists. He just assumes that you believe that he exists, that he's there. Right? It's what's called presuppositional apologetics. Right? You don't try to argue people argue with people proving that God exists. You just assume that they already know that he exists because the Bible says they know that he exists. And so Genesis one one in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm nineteen one the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The heavens are telling the glory of God. In other words, you look around at at God's creation and it just screams that there's a God. It screams His glory. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3 says, The whole earth is filled with His glory. So in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the reason why He created the heavens and the earth was to... Show off his glory. Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen through what has been made so that men are without excuse. No one get to heaven someday or stand before God someday and, and say, well, how was I supposed to know you existed? It says, what are you talking about? It was as plain as the nose on your face, Literally. <laughs> And every other amazing body part that you have. He's made himself clear. Revelation 4.11. Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. John Calvin said it well. He said that, quote, the universe is a theater for God's glory. We all like to go to the movies or the theater, right? Watch a play, watch a movie. And, and what it, it's a show, right? We enjoy watching the show, and they're putting on display certain things. And, and, and so he's saying, listen, you, you kind of you know, walk out of your house every day, and you look around, and it's like God's show. It's like a movie. It's like a play. It's like he just, he's just revealing his glory. I think it's a fair question. How do you know there's a God? Even though God didn't give us, like I said, the preface introduction with all the ontological, theological arguments for the existence of God. How do, how do we know there's a God? Just, just simply. What we've already talked about it mainly is, is, our, is through creation, right? You just look around. God says that I've made myself visible to you through creation. Also, he's made himself visible or knowable through our conscience. You're familiar with Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do do instinctively the things of the law, these not having law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternative accusing or else defending them. In other words, there's an innate understanding of right and wrong. Where did that come from? God put it there. He wrote it on our hearts. So we know because of, there's a God because of creation. We know because of our conscience. We also know because of the canon, keeping with the seas here, the canon, the Bible. The Bible says there's a God. This is his revelation to us. So this is how we know there's a God. We also know there's a God because of Christ. And uh, we know that we beheld his glory, right? We've been learning that in, in the Gospel of John, that uh, Jesus was God in human form. And when we saw Jesus, we saw God. And so we know it's through Christ. And I would also add this, number five, is conversion. How how do you know there's a God? 
Well, there's creation, there's conscience, there's the canon, there's Christ. But how about all the people all over this world whose lives have been radically transformed through a relationship with Jesus Christ? How do you deny that? How how do you explain that? There's a God who transforms people's lives. And so those are just some some practical ways that, that you know that there's a God. And so the number one thing you need to understand, there's a God who deserves glory. There is a God who deserves glory. Number two, God created all of us to live for his glory. God created all of us to live for his glory. Isaiah 43, 7 couldn't be any clearer. It simply says, God created everyone for his glory. Genesis 1, God created man in his own image, in his own glorious image. And yet, instead of perfectly reflecting God's glory in this world, we distort the, the image of God because of our sin. It's like when you walk into one of those funhouse things at the amusement park and you, you know, go into the mirrors and you stand in front of the mirror and some of them make you look short and fat and others make you look long and other ones make you look all wavy and stuff, right? It's just like, whoa, my image is messed up there. It doesn't look accurate, right? It's not an accurate representation of me. Well, guess what? We're not an accurate representation of God because of our sin. And yet that doesn't change the fact that God created us for his glory, to, to live for his glory. Very simply, Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do all to the what? Glory of God. Whatever you do, everything you do, whether you eat or drink, even the smallest little things that you don't even think about, right? Down to the smallest detail of your life, you should do everything to the glory of God. We are here on this earth to bring glory to God. And so that's why we should ask ourselves before we do anything, if whatever we're to do is to do, be done to the glory of God, we should ask ourselves, will this, what, glorify God? I mean, it's just a simple, profound way to live your life, that it's not about you, it's about God. And, and, and I, will, this, is, will this please me? Is this, will, will this make me happy? No, will this glorify God? Bottom line, about everything you do in life, will this glorify God? You say, well, what does it mean to glorify God? Well, I think it simply means all that we are responding in loving obedience to all that he is. It's just, it's just living a life for God's glory. This is something that I guess if there was just one thing we have tried to instill in our kids' hearts and minds is that, they are, that life is not about them, that they were created for God's glory. And, and sometimes, especially at the age they are now, when they're thinking ahead about college and about careers and, and wondering what they're supposed to do with their life, and sometimes that can be very nerve-wracking for a young person when they just don't know. I don't know what I, 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 I should do and, and what career I should pursue and what college I should go to. And we just try to reassure our kids, hey, it's okay, because you know the most important thing, that you're here for God's glory. So no matter what college you go to, no matter what career you get, no matter who you marry, right? As long as your, your passion is to glorify God, he's going to bless your life. He's going to bless your life. And the way we, we, one of the ways we tried to instill this in our kids was using the little Westminster's Catechism for Children. I know some of you, anybody use that with your children? Uh, I know a number of you have used that. It's a great little catechism, and we've got them in our resource center advertisement for a new resource center, right? Got to go check it out. We've got these little catechism books that are just really helpful for parents, especially parents of small children. And we would sit at the breakfast table, and, and I honestly don't think we got past question five in all the years that we were pandering our, our, our little ones because we just kept like beating that drum, those same five questions over and over again. And I thought, if they can just get these first five questions, they're set for life. You say, what are those first five questions? You answer them with me. You're adults, right? First question is, who made you? God. Very good, class. Okay. (laughs) Number two, what else did he make? Everything. You're so far two for two. All right. Why did he make you and everything? For his glory. Okay, you're three for three now. 
And then the question is, well, how do we glorify God? By loving Him and obeying Him is the essence of the answer. By loving Him and obeying That's how you glorify God. You love Him, right? You love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you obey Him. You live a life of obedience. You follow His, his commands in, in the Scriptures. So you love and obey Him. And then the fifth question is, why should you glorify God? Because He made you and He takes care of you is the simple answer that we taught our kids because he made us and takes care of us. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for God. You would have never been created in the first place. You would not have had your life sustained up to this day, right? And so it's very important that we understand that not only that there's a God who deserves glory, that God created all of us to live for his glory. Thirdly, All of us fail to glorify God as we should. All of us fail to glorify God as we should. Even though we were created to live for his glory, all of us fail to glorify God as we should. Romans 3.23, what does it say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Interesting. We, We know about the sin part. We all sin. Yeah, I know we all sin. But it's interesting how Paul uses uh, that phrase falling short of the glory of God to describe sin. I mean, what is the essence of sin? It's, it's falling short, right? It's missing the mark. It's not hitting the bullseye. It's not hitting the target. And what is the target? To glorify God. And you really have to go back to Romans 1 to, to see what it means to fall short of the glory of God. Romans 1.21 says, For even though they knew God... Right? Because he made it clear by creation. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for other things. That's what it means to fall short of the glory of God. You don't give God the glory. You, you miss the mark. People dishonor God when they refuse to admit that he's their creator. And, and, and they refuse to submit to his authority over them as, as their owner. God is the rightful owner of you. People dishonor God when they fail to express their gratitude to him as their sustainer. The one who's giving you life and breath and all things and that McGriddle you had yesterday morning at McDonald's, right? God gave that to you. He sustains you. And men fail to give God glory when they they don't show him reverence for him as their judge, the one that they're going to stand before someday. They don't revere him. They don't fear him. And so really the essence of sin, listen carefully to this, because this is, this is um, I think, profound, that the essence of sin is not all the bad things you do. That's when we think about sin, we think about the bad things we do, right? Well, the essence of sin is, is really not doing the one right thing, which is giving God the rightful place he deserves in our lives. That's the essence of sin. And that's the reason why we do all the bad things we do. Because we don't do the one right thing. And if you dishonor God, it results in disobeying God, right? And so the focus is not on, man, you're just a sinner. You do all these bad things and you smoke and you drink and you cuss and you have sex and da 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 right? Well, why are you doing all that? Because ultimately you're not giving God the glory. Your life is not about living for the glory of God. You're failing to glorify him as you should. Number four, number four, because all of us fail to glorify God as we should, number four is all of us deserve to be punished by God for failing to glorify him. All of us deserve to be punished by God for failing to glorify him. Remember, this is the God who does not give his glory to anyone else, right? And essentially what we're doing, when we don't give him glory, we're giving ourselves glory or giving something else glory, right? And so Romans 6.23 says that the wages of our sin is what? Death. In other words, the punishment for our sin is being separated from God forever. Being separated specifically from his glory. Follow the thought here, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 through 10. Paul was talking about when Christ was going to return. 
He says he would deal out punishment to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his presence. That may be one of the most profound definitions of hell anywhere in the Bible. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his presence. And while we may not be giving God the glory here on this earth, in our lives, we still enjoy the glory of his presence, don't we? We're living on his earth, breathing his air, eating his food. We enjoy all that. And I don't know what hell's going to be like, but it's going to be radically different. I don't know what, how, how, I can't even comprehend that, of what it would be like to be separated from everything that we just take for granted in life. And so hell is basically where people go for all eternity who refuse to glorify God here on earth. And for those that think, well, that doesn't, you know, hell, it's just, man, I cringe when I hear even the word hell. And man, are you sure that's like a biblical concept? Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> it's all over the scriptures. And guess what? Hell is totally fair. And it's totally just for God to shut us out of his glory forever. Why? He's only giving us what we want. We exchange his glory for something else here on earth, right? (laughs) Essentially, he's saying, listen, you didn't care about my glory during your lifetime, so it shouldn't matter to you if you're separated from my glory for all eternity. You know, hell wasn't originally designed for us. Who was it designed for? Satan and his angels, right? Matthew 25, 41 Jesus said, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So you've got to ask yourself, okay, well, why did God create hell in the first place? It was for the devils and angels. What was their deal? What did they do to deserve hell? Well, they refused to give God glory, right? The, the, the demons following Satan's lead refused to worship and glorify God. And Satan essentially said, I will be like God. He wanted God's glory. He wanted to be praised. He wanted to be worshipped alongside God. And God said, listen, I don't share my glory with anybody. Excuse the expression, go to hell. That's what he said, right? He cast them out of hell, or excuse me, he cast them out of heaven into this place called hell. And so all of us deserve to be punished by God for failing to glorify him in the same way that Satan and the demons deserved to be punished by God for failing to glorify him. Well, that's the bad news, okay? Let me give you the good news. Number five, things start to turn positive here. Number five, Jesus Christ glorified God by living and dying in our place, amen? Jesus Christ glorified God by living and dying in our place, Listen, God is bound by his holy character to preserve the worth of his glory. He's got to honor, he's got to protect his glory. that's, That's his character, that's who he is. And he does that by pouring out his wrath on those who don't glorify him. And as we've already seen in the last point, sending people to hell is one way to punish sin. That's one way to punish sin. The other way is sending his own son to live on earth and then kill him on the cross to pay the penalty for man's sin. That's the other way. So he could either separate you from his glory or he could separate his own son from his glory. And I think that's what was going on on the cross when Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou, what? Forsaken me. That in that moment in time, he was separated from the glory of God. He experienced what it was like to be away from the presence of God's glory. John Piper said it well. He said, quote, The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. And I would add, and it was all for the glory of God. John 1.14 
And the Word became flesh, that was Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Whose glory? God's glory. John 7, 18, Jesus said, He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. In other words, God, Christ just sought God's glory. That was his number one passion, was to glorify his Father. John 8, 50, I do not seek my glory. Jesus never did anything for his own glory. Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God. In other words, Jesus perfectly reflected the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Christ is the image of God, the glory of God shown in the face of Christ. And then I love John 13, 31. We'll get there in a little bit. John 13, 31 simply said, God is glorified in Christ. Simple as that. God is glorified in Christ. Everything we weren't and aren't, right? Jesus is. And Jesus' sole purpose in life was to glorify God in everything. He glorified God perfectly in life and death. He lived the life that none of us could live, and he died the death that all of us should die. And so it glorified and it pleased God to punish Jesus in our place so that he could provide us eternal life in heaven rather than punish us with eternal suffering in hell. That's an amazing mystery. That's called grace, right? Unearned, undeserved kindness and favor from a gracious and merciful God. Well, we can't end there because someone might go home thinking, oh, great, I'm so glad I came to church today and found that I'm, I don't have to go to hell because Jesus died on the cross. Isn't that great? Well, there's one more very important point, number six. God is glorified when we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ. God is glorified when we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ. We see both Jesus and his premier apostle, Paul, um, presenting the gospel in a two-pronged way, and, and, and the gospel always needs to include repentance and faith. It's not just about repentance. It's not just changing your life, cleaning up your act. No, you need to have faith in Christ. It's not just believing in Jesus, right? You need to repent of your sins. Jesus said, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, he, he testified to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We used to teach our kids, along with that little catechism, uh, about what do you have to do to go to heaven? I said, okay, kids, what do you have to do to go to heaven? And the little answer we got them to remember was, turn from sin and trust in Jesus. <laughs> turn from sin and trust in Jesus. That's repentance and faith. What does it mean to repent? Well, it simply means that you admit that you have sinned by living for yourself and it's being willing to, to live now for God's glory. Turning away from, from living your life the way you want to live it, right? And living it the way God wants you to live it, for His glory. In the book of Revelation, notice this connection between repentance and God's glory this is uh, during the bowl judgments in Revelation chapter 16, verse 8. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Interesting, the more God turns the heat up during the end times, right, and, and, the, and the punishment and the judgment increases, people will not be repenting, they'll be getting angrier and angrier. And more unrepentant. And ultimately, the fact that they refuse to repent, their refusal to repent is a refusal to give God glory. Remember Achan in the Old Testament took the stuff under the ban when they, when they overthrew uh, Jericho and, and uh, Joshua didn't know why they lost the next battle. And he said, listen, somebody, somebody disobeyed. Somebody stole some stuff and bring all the nation of Israel before you and I'll point out who he is. And so he goes through all the tribes and the families and it comes down to Achan and, and so he knew Achan was the guy. And so this is what Joshua said to Achan. He said, quote, give glory to the Lord and tell me now what you've done. 
In other words, confessing sin, right, and repenting of sin gives God glory. So it glorifies God when we turn from our sin, but it also glorifies him when he trusts in Jesus Christ, his provision for our salvation. Basically, we, we honor God by honoring Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us. To believe means to place your faith in Christ, trusting in his death on the cross as the only way to escape the punishment for your sin. It's not like, yeah, I'm thankful for Jesus and I believe in Jesus and I know he died on the cross, but I know I've got to work a lot too. I've got to kind of earn my way. Well, that's dishonoring Christ's death. It's basically say it's not enough, Right? John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We've talked about that verse many times, right? That believing and obeying are synonymous. What does it mean to believe? It means that you believe, you believe in something enough where you follow it, you obey it, you do it. John 15.8, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So God's glorified when we live Fruitful lives of repentance and faith, right? Abraham, in the Old Testament, described in Romans chapter 4, verse 20, it says, He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Listen, faith gives glory to God. You say, okay, can I get that? But what about those who refuse to obey God's command to repent and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ? They reject His means of salvation. Well, guess what? God will still be glorified through them. Why? Because no one can thwart God's glory. In Romans chapter 9, there's a, Paul uses an example of Pharaoh. In Romans chapter 9, verse 17, it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. In other words, Pharaoh was someone who refused to give God glory. He refused to honor God and to let his people go. And he stubbornly pursued them and ended up what? Being destroyed in the Red Sea with all of his army. Verse 18, so then God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And you will say to me, well, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Sometimes we don't like to think about this, but God's justice and God's wrath are just as much a part of his glory as his love and his mercy. God is just as glorified when he's expressing love and when he's expressing wrath. He's equally glorified. And so if you're sitting here today listening to this and you know that you're living for yourself and not God's glory, you're living for your own glory, The fact that God judges those who refuse to glorify him should be a powerful incentive for you this morning to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ and receive that free gift of salvation that God offers you through his son. Because either way, God's going to get glory out of you. No matter what you choose to do, God will be glorified in your life, either through your salvation or through your destruction. And so why not repent? (laughs) Why not trust Christ? Why not glorify God, right, through your salvation? And avoid the alternative. This is why God created us. This is why we exist. To give God glory. And one of the most practical ways that we as Christians can give God glory 
is to share his glory with others. This is the gospel. And maybe now you have another method of sharing the gospel, another tool to share the gospel. We've given you the God, man, Jesus, you model, right? For those of you that have gone on missions trips and we train you in God, man, Jesus, you, that's four points explaining the gospel. Um, here's Here's a six point presentation of the gospel that you can use. These aren't the four spiritual laws. These are the six truths about God's glory. And I think God is very glorified when we share the gospel in, in, in a God-centered way rather than a man-centered way. And so I hope this is helpful and will motivate you and stimulate you to want to get out there and, and share uh, maybe the gospel in a new, fresh way to those that you've been trying to witness to. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. And uh, Lord, we're thankful for your glory. And we confess, Lord, that we have fallen short of your glory. And we deserve to be punished with death and hell and being separated from your glory forever in eternity. But we thank you and we praise you for loving us enough, Lord, to put on display. And more important than loving us, Lord, you for, for putting on display your glory. It's really not so much how much you love us, but uh, that you wanted to put on display your glory by sending your son and showing your mercy and your grace and your justice and your wrath and, and, and punishing sin on the cross. And so, Lord, I pray you'd give us a more God-centered um, mindset when it comes to our salvation, that like everything else in life, it would be less about us and, and more about you. And so, Lord, we thank you for saving us, not just to keep us out of hell, but, Lord, so that we could spend all of eternity worshiping and praising you for your great glory. I pray we'd be faithful this week to take advantage of opportunities you give us to share this great message of hope with those we come in contact with. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.